Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Tunnel Vision, a show brought to you by uscfootball.com. I'm your host, Keely Yor, joined by Ryan Abraham and Shotgun Spratling. This is our first Sunday night Tunnel Vision of the season. We have a lot to talk about. We have a game to break down. USC wins in the final minutes. Uh, it was an exciting game, one that you probably would want fans to be there for. Uh, beats ASU. 28 to 27. So we'll break that down. We also got to talk to Clay Helton tonight in his Sunday night press conference. So we have some updates to share. So we'll get into that as well. Uh, like usual, you can call us 5124 Tunnel. We'll answer your calls, uh, whatever comments or questions you have. We'll try and answer them the best that we can. Our intern Micah is standing by to greet y'all. Uh, and then wherever you are uh, watching, I believe you're live on all three platforms YouTube, Periscope, and Facebook. Put your comments and questions, and I will put them up on the screen. And then you, you can also tweet at us, hashtag TunnelVision, and I'll put your tweet up on the screen. There's so many ways to talk to us. We love hearing from you guys, so make sure you do that. Guys, like I mentioned, this is a la this was a last-minute dramatic victory for USC. A little bit like Groundhog Day, like we have in the topics. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it. First off, Ryan, I'm going to go to you first. You watched sure. the game from home. What was that experience like for you, and, and what were your overall takeaways from watching this game? Yeah, first of all, it's very different. So just so people know, we are limited with the credentials. Media can't be in the Coliseum, but there's a lot of limitations. We normally get four or five people there, credentials. We only got three. So Keeley Shotgun and our Chris Trevino, I, they went and I stayed at home and did it from there. And I could still get on the Zoom calls at the end to you know interview the players, but very limited as far as what we can do uh, to cover it. So, but I was cool. You know, I, I got my mimosa. I got my breakfast burrito. Just like I said, I was like watching on my couch. I was listening to the radio broadcast in one ear and listening to the uh, television broadcast in the other. And so you could kind of catch some different things. A lot of times you'll pick up something from the sideline that they're reporting on the radio that they're not necessarily saying on the television and, um, you know, kind of tweet that out. So it was definitely different not being in the Coliseum. Like I've missed a couple of home games. Like I had surgery one year. I was at like, there was, but not often. If it's a home game, I'm usually there. So not yeah. being there for a home game was definitely weird. And then seeing a game, and I think I said on Wednesday, something dumb was going to happen, right? It's just going to be something Yeah, we something both dumb. agree the dumbness would happen. It was yeah. 2020. It was going to be weird. And I think that's what happened. I mean, this couldn't have been more 2020. It's like 57 minutes of like torture if you're a USC fan. And then three minutes of... Glee, you know, or just like a like every break that could have gone USC's way during that three minute period, pretty much did. And you know, converting 
two fourth downs at the turn of the touchdown. One of them is a tip drill that maybe Alan Rossi Brown did it on purpose. I don't know. I think he was just reaching up to to grab at the ball, and, and it lands in Brew McCoy's hand. And, and Drake London making this ridiculous, you know, fingertip catch, and then coming back, coming up with a stop at the end of the game. There was just so much crazy stuff uh, going on there. But you know, USC got the win, twenty-eight to twenty-seven. It was a twenty-two. The call I wrote after the game was just about how. You know, if you're a 2020 enthusiast, you would really like this game because it really was something crazy. Who in the world would be a 2020 enthusiast just, is my question. <laughs> there's probably some out there, you know. Sure, I don't know. there's weird people all over. Uh, Shotgun, going to you, it was a weird ex- – first of all, it was a weird experience for everyone. Everyone was out of their norm for games, so I think we all had to adjust to that. But Shotgun, you were on the concourse for this game, so not quite press box, not quite sideline. <laughs> what was your uh, reaction to the game, your in- analysis of the game, and, and your uh, experience on the on the concourse? It was definitely different. It was weird. I mean, just uh, you know, the, the energy wasn't the same um, for for me and Keely. You, usually being on the sideline and kind of hearing what the players are saying, so you hear the trash talk a little bit more. But you actually could hear a lot of stuff coming up from the field. Yeah, uh, the certain things that coaches would be yelling at players and whatnot, just because it's silent in there. And the crowd noise was more distracting than helpful to anything. It didn't make it feel more uh, normal. It was just really loud and just seemed like kind of out of place at, at the at the times they were using it. You know, there weren't any booing in there because I feel like there would have been some booing uh, from USC fans when they watched that game. But you know, it, it was it was different. It was unique. You know, I, I tried out a new lens to try to get some different angled shots from the from where I was at. So a couple of those came out really well with the Drake London catch. Uh, um, so, you know, just tried to make the most of it. Obviously, you know, doing the Zoom calls instead of, you know, being able to pull players aside a, a, a as they walk up the tunnel. You know, I'd love to talk to, you know, the rent, you know, Quincy Junty about his, his uh, you know, his uh, punt return, um, you know, punt, muff pump, muffed punt fumble recovery. He was also in on that onside kick. He was right there just talking to some of those guys, some of those those small tidbits that you kind of pick up and give you a better grasp of the game, I think. You know, kind of miss out on a little bit of those. Uh, but it, it was different, you know, and then for our experience. For USC's experience, though, it seemed very much like a Clay Hilton coach team that, you know, they make some mistakes that you scratch your head about, and then their playmakers sometimes step up and make really big plays. Ryan, what was your assessment of that? Yeah, so that's why I wrote the little note there, Groundhog Day, because, you know, there was a lot of, we've seen a lot of problems with this football team coached by Clay Helton over the years, and a lot of them uh, came, you know, came back, and we saw them again. You know, there were issues uh, giving up, uh, you know, conversions on third and long. There was a second and 21, and ASU ends up converting. There was a third and I think 24 on the same drive, and ASU ends up converting, and turning that into a touchdown. Um, you know, there was the the turnover issue. I thought they cleaned up special teams pretty well. There was a couple little, you know, small mistakes on special teams. But for the most part, I thought special teams was better. Um, I really wanted to see the linebackers play better. And I we'll, we can probably get into that later. I thought they didn't play very well. So there's just a lot of, like, we, saw, we thought the linebackers were just sort of there last year. And they weren't really, you know, a huge part of it, making all the big plays. They weren't making any big plays yesterday either. So some of those same problems, even though you changed a bunch of coaches, those same problems kind of came to fruition. And, you know, the way the offensive line blocked, especially the short yard situation, uh, you know, blowing some stunts, giving up some sacks to, to Keaton Slovis. There was definitely some of the same problems we talked about last year. So that's why you feel like, yeah, okay, well, you changed a whole bunch of coaches. But it's still, you know, Clay Hilton's still the head coach of this team. And maybe that's part of the reason why you're still seeing some of these problems. 
Now, I thought it was interesting on Clay Hilton's uh, Sunday night press conference. He talked about Keaton Silva's performance. He said, obviously, everyone is a bit rusty. I think he mentioned that uh, Slovis's arm injury from the Holiday Bowl was pretty serious, which I feel like they downplayed at least in March that it wasn't too bad, but they did say it took him, he got cleared a week before spring practice started in March. What did you take away from Slovis's performance? I know, Ryan, you had some comments about that. Is this uh, pandemic rust or is this something where you're, you're raising your eyebrow a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, I just watching it, and I watched rewatched it again this morning, it just didn't look like he was throwing a very crisp ball. It wasn't a tight spiral most of the time. Now, his ball was still accurate. Like he completed, he did a really good job completing some deep balls there. And you saw some of the crazy catches that were made. But just watching, going back and watching, even some of the short passes that were going sideways, you could see the ball just being pretty wobbly, like way more than normal. And um, so I don't know. I don't know if it was, and there was one one time where he dropped back and he dropped the ball like it was basically like he was dribbling it. I don't know if it was the, the you know, the, the dampness there. The, you know, the, the, it rained a lot before the game. I guess it rained a little bit. During the game, maybe it was just a, a slicker ball and it was uh, harder to hold. But for some reason, to me, it just didn't look like the ball was coming out crisply. But, you know, 40 or 55, that's not like 71% Keaton Slovis kind of stuff. But it's still, you know, it's, it was still pretty efficient, you know, 381 yards. Now, he could have had a couple picks. He did have one. Another one went right through Arizona State's defender's hands. But um, overall, I thought it was, a you know, a good performance by him, but maybe not the kind of Keaton Slovis that we – you know, expected. And I don't know, Shotgun, if you feel like the ball didn't, I don't know what it looked like to you guys, but to me, it just didn't look like the ball was coming out super crisp. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it, it, it didn't look like it was. Um, but also, I think it was, you know, a long layoff. This didn't feel, didn't have the feel of, you know, two future NFL quarterbacks playing in this game. Like we, we kind of hyped up before coming in. And I still think both these guys are, you know, have NFL futures as well, but neither one of them was crisp. I thought Jaden Daniels looked really sloppy at times. Some of his throws, you know, throwing the ball into the ground uh, to his wide receivers. I mean, he threw for what, 135, 150 yards, something like that. So USC shut down that portion of Arizona State's uh, offensive attack. Um, and part of that is Frank Darby got injured early in the game and, you know, you got a lot of young receivers there for Arizona State. But neither quarterback looked really crisp uh, until when the game was on the line, Keaton Slovis made the throws he needed to make. You know, he, he uses his eyes to manipulate the, the safety on the Drake London touchdown and then puts it, you know, that's a, a very difficult throw he puts on the line. And Drake London with a terrific catch, you know, fourth and nine. This is, this is not like it's the first down play and, hey, you throw it a little too high or you throw it behind or in front of him, you get another chance. This is game on the line type stuff. Um, and I thought Keaton Slovis was smart with, you know, when to use the hard count and, you know, getting that free play for and throwing it up to Amon Ross St. Brown and it gets tipped over to Brew McCoy. So I thought he did some nice things. It was an inconsistent performance for him. I mean, he was 40 of 55, but if you take away screen passes, I yeah. mean, I feel like there was like six screen passes that were incomplete. Um, USC screen game really struggled and, you know, maybe that was – you know, a part of the game they really wanted to attack Arizona State with, but it just seemed like it was going nowhere. I felt like they kept trying to do it when it wasn't successful. Um, and, you know, he had a couple – their screen games with getting the offensive lineman out, they ran some stuff to get, you know, just with a receiver blocking for another receiver that helped boost his percentage numbers. But overall, I, I felt like if you take some of those out, he only – he didn't miss many throws. You know, the, he missed the throw uh, that Merlin Robertson intercepted. And he missed the throw that nearly was intercepted to Drake London. Um, but besides that, most of the, the incompletions were overthrows or, you know, just, you know, them, them trying to run screen passes that, you know, just were not materializing. So I thought he was still, 
you know, finding receivers and throwing the right places and making good decisions in that other than the Robertson interception and the near interception. Uh, so 53 throws, he made the right decisions, it felt like. And knowing when to get out of the pocket, when to run, you know, the third and long, he picks up, what, 24 yards or something, his longest run of his career. Really smart there. There was options where he could have thrown the ball earlier, but he manipulated the defense by holding on the ball there and then took off off the sideline. So I thought he did some nice things, but a lot that he can improve on. And I think he would tell you the same thing. Uh, he's got high expectations. We have really high expectations for him as well. And, and yesterday wasn't a performance that you're putting on that Heisman reel uh, for, for next season or you know whenever he tries to get to the Heisman because he's not going to get a chance this year with so few games. Uh, real quick, the, the yeah. Rockow on uh, Periscope, he says his, his completion percentage was actually the same <clears throat> as last year, about 72. And it, that's true. It was about 72%. It just Like Shotgun said, though, there was a lot of short passes. There were some that were missed, but it just didn't – it didn't feel like one of those where, man, that guy was super accurate that day. You know, it's the, I think yeah. he made a lot of good decisions, but just maybe the way the ball came out, there was a just couple real fortunate plays. It, yeah. it just did. The number was the same. Like it, it was still about the same percentage, but I, for whatever reason, looking at it, just didn't feel that way. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Well, that's what I was going to ask you guys: is what do you take away from this whole offensive performance? Because you have over 500 total yards of offense, and yet it just felt kind of meh. But is that the, just what happens when you get into the 25 yard line four times and you don't get anything from that? It, what do you take away from it? And at the, in the same vein. Shock and I know you coming into the season were kind of buying the what we heard from USC's coaches about the offensive line. It just didn't seem like what we were hearing or their assessment really matched up a little bit. I know Clay Helton praised Elijah Tucker for his first game starting at left tackle, but as a whole, what do you take away from this offensive performance? I think there's still very similar question marks as we've had in the past. You know, the offensive line at times looked really good. You know, after rewatching the game, and you know, my first assessment while while shooting photos. I wasn't very high on them, but after rewatching the game, there's at times they looked really good. They ran the ball really well, effectively early uh, on early downs. They didn't do it enough. I think I, I think that was a bigger issue was the play calling of when to run, and then when teams know you're going to run, can you then pick up a yard? And they weren't able to do that. Um, I know some people in the the comments are giving Andrew Voorhees a lot of a lot of uh, grief for you know his blocking. He did get beat on the one fourth down in particular down uh, inside the five yard line, I think it was, or inside the ten yard line. But he actually graded out as USC's top offensive performer in that that game. Now maybe that tells you a little bit about you know the rest of the team as a whole that it was inconsistent. It wasn't crisp. I think that's probably the best mm -hmm. way to put it is that you saw the flashes. And that's kind of the thing with Clay Helton teams is you see these flashes and you get excited about, man, they could be so good if they could consistently do the right things, but they can't do it. They can't do it 10 plays in a row. They can do it 8 of 10. Uh, so what happens on those two plays when you don't do it, that's when you have, you know, you had some sacks. Liam Jimmins, you know, didn't pass off some stunts two plays in a row where the quarterback gets hit, um, you know, late in the game. Those are the type of things. And those were, those were still going to be question marks coming into this game is the communication portion of, of the offensive line play. Yeah. Um, I thought that they would have a better chance to be able to push some guys back with how veteran the offensive line is, how much experience it has. And, you know, the positive talk about some of the, the gains that the group had, um, you know, with their weight and strength stuff. Elijah Vera Tucker was dominant. Uh, Clay Helton said so in today's uh, presser. If you don't want to believe Clay Helton, I will tell you he was dominant as far as a pass blocker. Uh, he did not allow a pressure and USC dropped back, you know, I think 58 times or almost 60 times when you count sacks and scrambles and everything else. So that's, that's really impressive for his first game as a left tackle. In the run game, though, 
He didn't even have a great game. But there were, again, there were flashes. There's one play where he run and Vi runs a, a 10 yard run and, and Elijah Vera Tucker is leading the way and he pushes the guy outside the numbers and you go, where's that? Where's that consistently? Cause you know it's there. Um, so it, it's, it's the same thing with USC's offense, USC overall, as you see it and you get kind of frustrated watching them because you know what can be, but when are they going to, you know, accede to that, that position, ascend to that position and be there consistently? Something that I so go for, it, Ryan. Oh, real quick, yeah. So a couple, two things. I'm going to give you a bingo card. You, you can mark off on your bingo thing. Sure. Situational mastery. You want to talk about that? <laughs> wow, that was. You know yep. what? You know what was wrong with the offense? Situational mastery because Arizona State turns the ball over twice, and both times USC returned the ball back over. Those were one of those situations where you get a gift. A, a guy muffs a punt, and now you get the ball in plus territory. And then you're not able to, to score because you turn the ball over too. That's bad. That's terrible for that situation. You know, having to, you know, miss it on fourth down three different times. They got it. They went for it eight times on fourth down. But, you know, early on when you have like a third and one and then a fourth and one and another fourth and one and you can't punch it through or you fumble on a, a fourth and one where you, you pick up the yards. Like there were situations where you just have to be solid and, and do what you need to do and make the right play. And USC just didn't do that in a lot of those situations. So situational mastery is something Clayton wants to talk about. I thought that they failed at that. And then, you know, just when it's the fourth and one, the third and one, whatever it is, like Shotgun was saying, the interior of the offensive line, who cares what the play call is? It's power or whatever. You're a dude. You're 320 pounds, and there's a 280-pound guy in front of you. You need to push him one way. He's trying to push you the other way. USC got pushed the other way. And I, that's, you know... It wasn't about scheme. It was just about who was tougher in that trenches at that point. And it was the Arizona State defensive line over USC's offensive line. I think also we should point out those, those third and one, fourth and one situations, they really get, uh, you, you know, really get exasperated when you go third and one, you don't get it, and you go fourth and one, don't get it. They did pick up, uh, I think, four of the, in the game, you know, between um, third, short yardage situations on third or, or fourth down. Um, they picked up a fourth and three. Stephen Carr had a run outside. I thought they could have used some more imagination with those short yard situations. They thought that they could run and just push people forward. And I think that's part of the issue is if you think you can do something and you can't, all right, when are you going to make an adjustment? Because it seemed like it took them way too long to make that adjustment. They did, they did with the tempo and that was working for them probably the first quarter and a half. You know, they were able to, you know, they get up to the ball quickly and then go, go quick and pick up short yardage situations. They did that multiple times. But when Arizona State made the adjustment and suddenly, you know, Marquis Step gets tackled and it looks like, yeah, maybe that could be a first down. They mark it third and one. You get stuffed. And then it's fourth and one. You try to do the same thing again and you get stuffed. All right. Now you got, you got to start making the adjustments. And I think it took them a little bit too long to do that, in my opinion. I was going to ask you about tempo because something that stuck, stuck, out to me was after the Notre Dame game, talking to Graham Harrell post game, he was saying he noted how Keaton looked better, uh, just because when they went up tempo. And I, and, and Harrell said something curious about like they got out of their heads when I just put them in up tempo. They just played to their talent. And I felt like, especially in those last two minutes when the game was on the line and they were just going up tempo, it just felt like they played better. Um, and, and Keaton really stepped into his throws more. I don't know. Do you think that it, it might be better to go with that strategy? This is when I we just like talked to Graham Harrell about things and, and we would like to after the game, but we didn't get to. But do you think Messing, adjusting tempo more would help at least if your team is kind of in a funk as it seemed at times. Anyone? Ryan, you want to go for that one? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I think Keaton Slovis feels pretty comfortable when they're uh, doing that. The defense can't substitute. I mean, there's 
there's definitely some positives to it, but I feel like sometimes you do that. They did run a tempo play after uh, Brew McCoy uh, apparently fumbled, but then uh, I think Shotgun said Jude Wolf ended up recovering it, but it looked like they were going to review it. So they ran tempo because they wanted to not have the play get reviewed, and it turned into a sack. Keaton Slovis gets sacked. The defensive lineman for Arizona State runs off to the tunnel to do his business or whatever. <laughs> it was a really weird play. Yeah, so like, But I think there's times where tempo would work, but there's like situations too when sometimes you just don't feel like they're running tempo, but maybe not. Maybe they weren't planning on that just because they didn't want that call to be reviewed and it looked like a you know, Brew McCoy fumbled the ball. Uh, but there's, I think we've seen USC kind of run into issues with that too. But as long as you know, Slovis feels comfortable, I think he does. I don't mind doing it, but they have to. You have to kind of be ready for. It. I think sometimes if you do it just sort of randomly, like oh, we need a tempo right now, yeah. it doesn't seem to like click, real, you know, right for them. Yeah, they ran ninety-five plays. Jeez, I mean, I, I think that's getting lost. But if you rewatch those last couple drives, like Jermaine Loyal uh, gets a, a sack of Keaton Slovis at one point. Uh, I can't remember which drive it was, but. I was I when I was watching the game, you know, when I was shooting photos of the game, I was like, wow, they're, they're really professional. It must be the NFL coaches and stuff because he didn't get up and celebrate, didn't do anything. But then when I rewatched the game, uh, the broadcast version, I was like, oh, he's just dead tired. That's why he didn't celebrate or anything. He's just like, crap, I got another play. Hopefully they don't pick this up um, because that I think that played into why USC was able to move the ball a little bit better there late in the fourth quarter uh, is because you know that Arizona State's defense wore down, and that's even with. 92 players going down with cramps. Um, whether those were all legit, it happened that I think every single one of them was as USC picked up a first down, I think. And at one point, it was three and four plays. You know, USC picked up first downs uh, in three or four plays, and on each one, an Arizona State player was cramping. So it, it, it seemed very interesting that, that was the timing of those. But even with that, them slowing the pace down with that, you know, Arizona State's players were, were still, it, it looked like they were the dead tire late, late in the game. Um, so I think that he, you may want to see them do a little bit more tempo. And part of that was Arizona State running more tempo is why there were so many more plays on the USC side. Um, so it, it's an interesting thought. Uh, but I think you just, you got to find the crispness. Now, if it takes you going to tempo and that's where you find that you're most crisp and that's, you know, everyone's just going out and playing ball. They do it, but if it gets you, if you go up tempo and you go three and out, then it doesn't work at all. Yeah. So we have a couple callers on the line, and I'm going to go to them. First up, it is Dave from Iowa. Hello. Oh, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. Hello, you're live on television. We think Dave is. Uh, this is Thomas from Oh, sorry, Thomas. Hello. Hey, you know, we all dream of being in Iowa, but we'll suck it up here in Malibu. <laughs> sure. hey, well done. I so, uh, want to thank all of you. I wanted to congratulate Ryan on something. Oops. Sorry, it's freaking I out. Think it made a... Sorry, Thomas, I muted Hello. you by accident. Could you start your question again, your compliment? <laughs> no problem. Hey, uh, I, I took a little swipe at Iowa. We all dream of living at the moment, but we'll suck it up here in Malibu. I'll hit that one again. <laughs> also wanted to uh, thank Ryan on today's show with the Harvey Hyde. He said something that really hit home, and I think it'll hit home with all Trojan fans and the Trojan family. We all know that Clay Helton is horrible, and if we could sit around and complain about Clay every Saturday till the cows come home, and until the knuckleheads up on campus decide they've had enough of Clay, it's not going to change. I think Ryan is right. Let's enjoy this victory. It was a lot of fun. It was frustrating to watch. We have so much talent. 
the idea that we're having to struggle to beat Arizona State sickens me and many Trojan fans. But you know what? we got to support these guys, and uh, let's see if we can do it in spite of Clay. There is not a worse coach in the country than that guy, and I'm tired of everyone telling me what a good guy he is. I'll tell you this. My neighbor's a good guy. I don't want him coaching my Trojan. Thanks for the good show, guys. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for... I, he might have paraphrased a little bit what I said, because I don't, I don't even know if I mentioned like Clay Helton and the hate or a little bit, but that's, <laughs> it's definitely out there, obviously. like There's a lot of it from the fans, but this is just a short season, right? You've got six, seven games, or you're eighth game or whatever. It's a, this is going to be one of the better teams that USC plays. You get a good win. Um, I think that's just one you have to say, like, hey, you know, I feel pretty good about winning this game. Does it mean, like, long term, this is, you know, they're going in the right direction, all that stuff? No, I don't think so. Like, it doesn't look, it didn't, it didn't look like they were going in the right direction most of that game. But at this point, like, just the fact that you got to play football with a third of the Pac 12 schedule was wiped out because of COVID, just, I think you got to be happy with stuff. You got a game, you know, I get to wake up early. Uh, watch a football game, cover a football game. We got to put all this content up. Like I'm just kind of taking like the little wins here. And should you feel amazing about this 28-27 win? Probably not. But you feel good about getting a win. I think it's okay. I mean, I don't. I don't have any issue with that. I. I it's tough when people just want to complain about everything. And I get it. We completely understand. Like we said, it's Groundhog Day. Not a lot has changed. But we know this is going to be a weird season. And any chance you get out there, even play the game, and then get a win, I think you just kind of have to enjoy it. Shadi, what's your take on, on how to take in this game, if you will? I mean, it's college football, and we all enjoy college football. Sure. So it was a dramatic game. Take, take away the fact that uh, for USC fans, their team won. It wasn't pretty, but they found a way to win. They're 1-0 in the, in the win column, uh, win-loss column. And they were able to you know come back in dramatic fashion. So if you stuck around to the end of the game, now that may have been hard for some fans, but if you did stick around to the end of the game, then you got to see you know a fun ending there and some some crazy plays to make it happen. So yeah. this is this was the type of game that I really felt bad that fans weren't in the stands. Yeah, because you know we we see so many games and you know USC beating a team and they they win by ten points or something. And it does it's a lackluster win. But it's not dramatic. This was a dramatic game. So if you would have come to the game, you would have got your money's worth out of this one. So it's unfortunate there weren't fans in the stands because it would have been such a, a good uh, atmosphere for being a season opener and such a dramatic ending. But unfortunately not. So we're making the most of it. And hopefully you guys at least you know got to enjoy the fact that USC won and you had the rest of your day to watch more college football sure. or be very intoxicated because you watched USC so early and we're very frustrated <laughs> with it. Whichever. <laughs> Harvey had had a good point. Uh, if there were fans in the stands, do you think they would have been around in those last three minutes? It's a good know. question. I saw that, that uh, a couple of people tweet that yesterday. Uh, I don't know if it was at me or not, but that's a very good question because especially with traffic around L.A. and at that time of day, you might be like, all right, let's go, let's go do something else for the rest of our day. Let's go to the beach or something. This team's not turning around. This is the same team we've seen. And then you, you're driving out and you realize, I'm, I should have stayed for that. I missed yeah. out on something good. I mean, there's three minutes. So just picture this. You're in the stands. There's three minutes left. No, it, it's, it's fourth it's more, and 13, and you're down by 13 points. Like, Yeah, it's more. No, it's six minutes left, and you fumble on fourth and one. And then you're, whoop. Yeah. That, that's, that's when yeah. you go, But even okay, if you stuck around, it, it was ESPN had it at 99.9 If you stuck around, you're not leaving for the fourth and 13 play. Yeah. You're not going to go, oh, well, they got fourth down. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Tinfoil hat. Do the plays happen? You know, like the fingertip grab, the onside recovery. Do, does that happen if there are fans and the pressure is higher? 
See, that this is something, and you, you saw it a lot in the, the Major League Baseball playoffs, is young players can make plays quicker because they don't feel the pressure of the, the added pressure of the crowd. So you see a lot of young rookies in, in baseball did really well this year. Um, so I think you look at your younger players, and for USC, maybe you look at Brew McCoy and say, you know, he doesn't feel any pressure, and he, he's able to, to not only make the easy tip catch, that one was easy for him, but, you know, finds a way to, to get the ball on the onside kick. He almost had it initially, and he even said after the game, he said he felt like he wasn't aggressive enough going to get it, but the ball pops the free. He sees it, jumps over the pile, and, and snatches on it. And the referees blow the whistle pretty quickly there because Merlin Robertson was trying to rip it out of his hands. And the ball actually comes free. I don't know if you guys noticed this on the replay. Chase Williams ends up with the ball. Yeah, he like if, runs away with it. If they didn't blow the whistle early, he might have took it back for a touchdown. <laughs> you know, USC might have scored way too quickly then. Um, so it, it was interesting um, with just how everything kind of played out there. Uh, but I think it does play in that younger guys can play quicker, which I think would have played better to Arizona State's advantage because they had so many of those young receivers. But you did see L.V. Bunkley Shelton from Guardian Sarah. He had a fumble in the game, Talanoa Hufunga. Interesting for USC, their three fumbles, veteran guys. You know, the Tyler Vaughn's yeah. one in particular – you know, he, he was carrying that one pretty loose. Uh, he just did not realize that Chase Lucas was back there, which he should have had a better uh, spatial awareness there, knowing that you know, it was a screen and Drake London had blocked the guy. I still think Drake London came up with that ball, too. I don't know how the referees, you know, seeing the pictures that I, I took of it with him and with both hands around the ball, surprising. But the guys that fumble the ball are guys you expect to take care of the rock for, for you at USC, and those were the guys not making it, which leads me back to preparation. Did you hit enough in practice? Did you do enough scrimmaging to where those guys were comfortable getting hit? I, I don't know. We didn't see it, so it's hard to say. The coaches all felt like they had done enough uh, uh, scrimmage reps, had done enough you know, full-speed live uh, simulation type stuff. But on game day, it didn't show up there. The, the tackling angles were okay. A little bit off, it seemed like. There were a couple guys out of place, which you're going to see with a new defense. But USC's defenders, I don't know about you guys, but it seemed like they were really slow. Like It just yeah. seemed like they were running in muck. Before we get into the defensive uh, question, Shotgun, because you went a little long on that answer, I'm going to go to <laughs> another caller we have in the queue. I believe it is Dave from Iowa. Dave, you dropped out right as I brought you up, so I think you're back. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes. Hey, Dave. Awesome. All right, and it's Dave from Iowa. First off, I just want to thank James from Boulder for giving us kind of a scouting report on Trainum. Looks like ASU's got a bright future at the running back position. And then, too, Ryan, I'd like to get your thoughts on what the number 10, uh, in terms of like the team talent rankings, I'd like to know what, you, what your take is on the number 10 beating the number 30 team only by one point. Yeah, we so we've the team talent is a, a composite that you get from 24/7 Sports. Now this is based on the high school rankings, so it doesn't take into account if you were a four-star coming out of high school and you're a senior, how much have you developed or things like that. Um, yeah, no, I think USC is the more talented team uh, for sure, but I think Arizona State is doing a good job of, of building on that. You know, the Jaden Daniels is the highest-rated quarterback they've ever recruited. They got a couple of guys that USC was after at wide receiver, like. L.V. Buckley Shelton and, and guys like that that um, are good. I think they're going to be good. Uh, like Johnny Wilson yesterday, I don't think he had a catch. Like he had a couple of drops or at least a few drops. That's tough. And, and you lose Frank Darby early on. That, I think that was a tough one for ASU. But ASU looked like the better coach team. Um, yeah, it was, a. I mean, obviously very fortunate to come out and win that game. If you're a 99.8% chance, whatever it is to, to, you know, for ASU to win, obviously that didn't happen. 
And that's been another Groundhog Day sort of problem where USC goes into a game with a more talented roster. If you asked each coach, hey, you can pick a roster, which one would you pick? Most of the, most of the times you're going to pick USC's roster. But why aren't they able to put it together and why aren't they able to play up to that, that talent level? So I think it's some spots they did. Uh, I mean, I think the, I love the way that the safeties were playing. They were just making a lot of plays. But you got some highly ranked linebackers that weren't really making those kind of plays. So it's some up and down. You know, Marlon Tuipelotu was just a beast out there, uh, especially with Brandon Peely not being able to, uh, to not to be able to go with the broken finger. He had surgery on it, and Jay Tufeli, uh, you know, opting out. That puts a lot of pressure on Tuipelotu, and I thought he did well. So there's definitely guys that played up to that potential. But the problem is, you did feel like what was going well. You had these crazy good athletes making great plays as opposed to here's a systematic approach to why this was going to work. And that's that's been one of the problems we've seen for the last several years. Mm-hmm. Now, as Shaka and I... I, I mean, it, it's football. Things happen. If you turn the ball over four times, it doesn't matter what your ranking is. You can lose. I mean, what's Clemson's overall ranking versus Notre Dame? I, I have a feeling that Clemson's probably a little bit higher, but it's a good team. And, you know, if you get coached up well, then... You know, uh, lower-ranked teams can beat uh, higher-ranked teams, Coastal Carolinas versus Kansas State or whatever it may be. Yeah. Now, as promised, we're going to talk about the defense. It was Todd Orlando's debut. What did you guys – what were your initial thoughts? And did your first watch change your opinion from your rewatch of what you took away from this defensive performance? Uh, I think mine was pretty close to the same. Mm -hmm. I, I tried to watch it a little more closely. I did try to watch the linebackers more. I mean, typically what you were seeing was, you know, Marlon Tuipelotu up front. You had uh, Caleb Tremblay and uh, and Nick Figueroa and then and Drake Jackson. Correct me if I'm wrong on these shotgun, but usually it was more like a four man front with Drake Jackson there, kind of standing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had the two linebackers with uh, you know R- Raylan Goforth and uh, and Palier Naoteote. And then you had like the secondary with the you know Nick. So it's kind of like this nickel four two five package. I think that's what I saw most of the time. Shotgun. I don't know if you any different there, but I just I tried to watch the linebackers. Because I wasn't hearing their name being called on the on the uh, broadcast, and where were they doing? Where were they making plays? You would see, oh wow, there's Isaiah Polamau breaking in and making a tackle for a loss, or there's uh, you know Talano Hufunga. I mean, yeah, okay, did he miss a tackle here and give up? And they end up giving a touchdown, but he was seemed to be at the point of attack. He was he th- there was a lot of guys on the defense, and Marlon Tuipelotu. I mean, as a defensive interior defensive lineman, you're getting your name called more than like your linebackers. There's something wrong there, and I I feel like. They were either getting blocked or they were going. The, I would watch some of the plays where it looked like maybe they would, you know, that looked like the play was going to go to the left. The linebackers go that way, and the play goes to the right, and they're just completely out of the play. Or plays that are going up the middle, where right where they are supposed to be, and somehow they're just out. They just weren't in the play. They weren't like the instincts weren't there to shed a block or figure out what's going to happen and just put yourself in a great position. If you remember guys like. The, the Matt Grudegoods way back in the day. This is before probably both of your times. Like, you know, he wasn't the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, but he just was always like in the right spot. And I just didn't get the sense that these guys were in the right place. And it just reminded me of last year where who were making all the plays. You know, it just wasn't the linebackers were just sort of like it, it, they were underutilized again. I just didn't feel like they were product they were as productive as they could have been. Yeah, I think the linebackers, they, they probably graded out as some of the lower-ranked players on that defense. They didn't do much in this game, even though uh, – and you kind of know that the, that the position doesn't do well. When, when asked about it in his press conference, Clay Helton um, didn't say – he didn't have anything glowing to say about them. 
Uh, he yeah. said, you know, they get better. He expects more out of out of Pali and ITOJ because he puts them on a pedestal. Um, EA was was probably one of the bigger disappointments yesterday. Maybe it's just new defense, but he looked hesitant at times, and that's probably the 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 big thing that you were hoping not to see. It's like just go full speed and go hit something, even if you're not, you know, even if you make a, you know, you're out of place or something. Start doing things full speed, and it looked a lot of times like he was it was hesitant to do something, didn't want to make a mistake instead of flying all around the place. Like Talanoa Hufunga was flying all around the place. He made some mistakes. Uh, I don't think he graded out great either. Uh, he had a couple missed tackles and, and some different things, but they were blitzing him a lot. He was doing a lot of different things. And that's what you expect. And did it, and also he made plays. He stripped a ball. Um, you know, I, I, he was in on a couple other big plays as well on some stops. So that's what you were looking for out of your playmakers. And Marlon Tuipelotu was a beast. He was everywhere. He had the huge stop on Jaden Daniel trying to take off running, which was the same play that Jaden Daniels had previously picked up on a third and nine because they they ran the same defense. Man coverage in the back, and EA was blitzing on a uh, gap on the on the left side and Jay of the or the right side of the offensive line. Jane Daniels went through the left side, and there was no one there. Well, same thing here. There's an opening there, and Tuipelo two pulls him down. You know, he w- he was terrific in that game, and he was the one guy that stood out. But Nick Figueroa had a really nice play on that third down. You know, maybe USC doesn't even have a chance to come back in that game if he doesn't pick that one up. So there were some positives, especially on the defensive line. Drake Jackson, I think he dropped into coverage four or five times. So, yes, it was it was a 4-2-5. You know, that's basically what they were running. Five defensive backs. They had a nickel back in there. It was Greg Johnson for about, I think, 60% of the time, two-thirds. And then Max Williams in there. Didn't rotate a ton. You know, Marlon Tuipelotu, uh, just looking at – these aren't my numbers. I haven't done the full breakdown that I do. But I think it was 65 plays for Arizona State, and he played 53, according to, to one website. So, you know, that's a ton of snaps for a nose tackle, and he looked great doing it. Um, so didn't see a ton of rotation there. Maybe that's because Brendan Peely wasn't there. But there were a lot to left still be desired with that defense, and it's one that I'll give a little bit of a pass to because, again, first time with a new coordinator, and you had four weeks to, to put it in. And, yeah. you know, it's a weird, weird year. So they haven't been doing stuff all off season as far as being able to to be able to get right where they need to be. So I'll give that one a little bit more of a pass than I, than I will some of the offensive things, the inconsistencies there. Real quick on that, Arizona State of all the Pac-12 teams, they had the fewest yards. They didn't even get 400 yards. Jane Daniels just didn't look super comfortable throwing the football, which I you know credit the USC secondary for a lot of that. The problem was they ran the ball well, and then the game was going Arizona State's way. They were running at Arizona State's pace. They were able to just keep running the football. It was like they were running out the clock in the fourth quarter, and that that strategy obviously didn't work. But once USC took the lead, then you are like, okay, now Jaden Daniels, you have to throw the football, and they did a good job, and they defended that. So they, they didn't give up a ton of yards, but they're just being able to not get off the field on some of those third and you know second, third and long situations is just you know one of those problems that they'll have to work on. And like the team speed, tackling angles, things like that. There was definitely some issues to work on, but overall, you know. Jaden Daniels wasn't great in the game, and he's a really good quarterback. Yeah. yeah. He only beat USC with his legs in this game, and that was something that you hope to see an adjustment there and put a spy on him or do something a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, they blitzed a lot to try to force him to throw early, but didn't necessarily do anything in particular to keep him from running uh, when they only brought like five guys. 
I'm going to go to a couple more questions and then we'll drop into uh, the comments that we have and the questions and go a little bit rapid fire, a faster pace, if you will. Sure. Um, the thing I'm struggling with in the pandemic season and just analysis wise is I think if we had seen, you know, basically like 30 practices before the first game, I think you could evaluate guys of, oh, he's having a bad game or, oh, we've seen him do better in practice. Um, and the problem with what we're getting is we heard so much praise about Palie no, to Ote from Clay Hilton and how he's developed and then you see the performance that he has in this game what do you take away from that because I think normally we'd be, we'd be we'd be able to back it up with what we saw in practice maybe he got overwhelmed etc cetera, etc cetera. how do you evaluate guys performance when you really just this is the first time we're seeing them since March you know yeah I think you know, we listen to what the coaches say uh but then you have to watch and we get a limited li we're limited with what we can watch and who we can talk to there's just we can't do as much as we normally could do in a regular year and what we saw on the field it was pretty clear. It just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't good. And it, it, the praise, if you're going to give a lot of praise in practice, that's fine. And maybe it was just an off day. But if we see another game that's similar to that, it's either something with their, you know, the linebacker's performance. It's something with the scheme. Something is, is, is wrong. So if he looked really good in practice, whatever reason, he wasn't really looking good in the games. And that's, you know, Todd Orlando, I don't think he's someone that's going to, you know, take any flight. He's going to watch that film and go after them and just be like, hey, here's what I want you to do wrong, and uh, here's what I want you to do differently, and here's what you did wrong. So I'm, I'm, I think they're going to take a you know, step forward going into the Arizona game. The problem is you're not going to be playing as quality of an opponent. So this was sort of like your, your litmus test. This is what you were, you, know, you were going up against a good team. You know, maybe you get a good team in week three. I don't think Arizona is going to be a very good team. We didn't get to see them in week one. Their, their game got canceled for COVID. Uh, I just don't think they're going to be that good. But you know, we'll see. But if they, he looks a whole lot better against Arizona, does that mean it's fixed, or does it just means that you know they had a much worse offensive line? They're just not as good of a team as yeah. ASU. Yeah, Shadi, how are you? Uh... I mean, the NFL doesn't go well. He practiced really well. Yeah, <laughs> true. That's they don't true. go well. His coach talks about him really, you know, really fondly. No, they say, look at the tape. What do you do during the game? And you know, if you don't start putting out good tape, then you're not going to be a guy that's playing on Sundays. Yep. Alrighty, let's go into rapid fire questions. Actually, no. First off, special teams. Quickly, oh. quickly, I apologize. Uh, both of you have been on special teams a lot in the last couple of years. What did you take away from this performance? Uh, uh, Ryan, I'll go to you first. Yeah, real quick, we talked about like we wanted the, the floor to be raised, and I think it was. I think there was a couple of mistakes. There was a couple kickoff returns that they you know maybe didn't need. They could have just taken a knee. They didn't get out to the twenty or the twenty-five. That's fine. One one Parker Lewis kick went out of bounds. The rest were in the end zone. You know, he made all of his PATs. He executed a uh, an onside kick that's, you know, what, 8% chance of success on those things. So for a true freshman kicker to come in there and do those things, I thought that was great. They did force a fumble or, you know, a fumble happened on the punt return on a, you know, punt coverage team. So overall, they didn't have any major gaffes and they had some good plays. So I think that's what you want from special teams. You just don't want to see, oh, there was a great, there was a touchdown, but you also fumbled twice. You don't want to see those kind of gaps. So I think they raised the floor a little bit and kept the ceiling about where it was. Yeah, that's exactly what I said yesterday in this analysis. You, you raised the floor. Um, Parker Lewis looked really good in his first game. Not only all the things Ryan said, but one of those PATs was the game winner. You know, there's pressure in, in the last two minutes, um, and you see him jump up a little bit after making that one. Yeah, he was hyped to make yeah. that one. But, uh, you know, he... 
calm and cool uh, through the process of it. And then afterwards, that's when you celebrate. He looked good. Ben Griffiths, 50-yard punt in the air, a 58-you know roller. He had another one. His first one was only 38 yards. You know what happened on that? It was muffed because the, the, the coverage team was there and on top of Jack Jones, and he got spooked by it. Um, so, you know, I thought he looked terrific in this game. So the returns, I think they, they ended up putting Elijah Griffin back there, and I think they feel like he's more of a playmaker. Maybe he'll make something out of nothing. And that's why maybe you see those returns that only go to the 12 or the 15 or whatever because they wanted a spark. I think that I think that was part of it. I, you know, obviously we didn't get to talk to Sean Snyder, but I it, I think that's what he'll say about it is, hey, we wanted to try instead of our more reliable guy guys back there um, that are just going to be consistent for us. We we're looking for someone to create a spark because we we're trailing and stuff. And Sean Snyder talked a little bit about that before the season about how sometimes you got to you got to create a spark for the team. So I think that's why you saw that. So I think they'll take that. You know that hey, sometimes we're going to have a you know a negative, uh, a less return than you than you would get out of a fair catch, but you'll take your chances. Mm-hmm. We got a question from Mars Tracy on uh, on Periscope. Sure. Where were the tight ends? And I, this is a good point. When I rewatched it, uh, I think the first pass to Jude Wolf ended up being negated because of a penalty or something like that. But there was a short pass to him. Um, I saw that you know one of the sacks I think was a, a guy that was on his side or. One of the, the tackle, I think the tackle for loss on the fourth and one that Stephen Carr, he was in the backfield. It looked like he was going after the guy, but went after him too late. I don't know if he should have shifted to the other side, but it, you know, it didn't look like that was good. The interception that Keaton threw was to a tight end. Um, I just didn't, like the linebackers were ineffective. Shocking. I thought the tight ends were ineffective. You, you think I'm wrong there. Jude Wolf, the torch has been passed. He played probably 60% of the snaps, if not more, in this game. Um, and Eric Cromanhook was the was the starter, but then it was handed over to Jude Wolf, and he was the guy that was targeted. He was the guy that has to play better. You know, he hey, first game for him really. You know, first real action. He played a little bit last year in some garbage time, but this this was his opportunity. His coming out game, and he missed some blocks there. The the sack that you were talking about after the Brew McCoy uh, near fumble. Um, you know, Jude did recover that fumble. However, the next play, it was him and uh, Vivai Malapai, and between the two of them, they let the guy go and get to Keaton Slovis. It, they were targeting him on the interception. That wasn't on Jude Wolf. That was on Keaton Slovis. He didn't read the linebacker correctly on that one. Uh, Jude Wolf played okay, but he's got to do better as a blocker. If they're going to leave the tight end in as much as they did, and they did leave the tight end in the majority of the game until the fourth quarter when they were down, that's when they went to true four wide receivers, and that's when you saw Brew McCoy come in alongside of. Tyler Vaughn's, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Drake London. So uh, you got to do a little bit better, but it looks like the torch is is being passed, and he's the guy now. Yeah. It was much more effective offense in the fourth quarter than the other time. So I just, to me, it just seemed like it wasn't an effective position on the field. Which was what we've seen year after yeah, year. Yeah, <laughs> another, another uh, Groundhog Day thing, yeah. Yep. Uh, let's go into questions. First off, from Jasper Smith, he said, will Brandon Peely be ready for Arizona? So we got an injury update from Clay Helton on his Sunday night press conference. He said that Brandon Peely uh, suffered a broken middle finger uh, that required surgery, so that's why he was out on Saturday. He said he's week to week, so that's something to uh, just watch out for there. And then the other one we got an update on was Brett Nealon. Uh, he has an ankle injury, Helton said. Uh, I'm hearing that there's uh, they're trying to figure out if there's another injury there, so we'll keep you updated if there is. So uh, that was the update. Shotgun, do you feel like uh, Brandon Peely was noticeably missed on Saturday? I, I think that more than him being missed this game will be if a team an offense runs 80 plays. You know, if Arizona tries to go up tempo 
and they were able to hold on to the ball more than Arizona State did, then yes, because I don't think you can expect Marlon Tui-Pelotu to be playing 70 snaps a game. He played 53 uh, in this game, so that, that's a lot for a, a nose tackle. And I don't think that they necessarily want to get into the, the depth there. I thought Stanley Taufu, when he came in, you know, he came in as a, as a nose tackle. I believe he was playing nose tackle. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, he, I think he played a little bit beside Marlon as well, but I thought he was very effective. So maybe that gives them a little bit more confidence so they don't have to play Marlon as much. Uh, but Brendan Peely being a senior and a guy that is so athletic and has potential, you, you would love to see him back. I think he, he can create an impact and keep Marlon Tuipolotu fresh so we can see him be dominant like he was in this game throughout the season because that's been the biggest thing with him in his career has been he's looked really good the first five or six games of the season and then he's just worn down and not been that effective in the second half of the season. So if you want him at the end of the season and particularly if you get to a Pac-12 championship game, you want him to be a dominant force, uh, then you're going to need somebody else to step in and take some of those reps off of him as well. Yeah. Now, also with Brandon Peely, uh, they, they said he put pins in the finger. Yeah. If you remember correctly, Juju came back from this within a matter of a few days. Uh, someone else had it, and it took them about a week and a half. So depending, I mean, it could the the severity of the injury could definitely vary from what happened to either the the previous players has happened to. But we have seen Juju was rushed back and, and played, I think, against Utah and through the stiff arm. I think that was that game that he played. Maybe maybe a different year, but uh, maybe he's back. Are you uh, talking about the plate in his hand? Yeah, I thought he had pins in his in his finger actually. No, it was, it was a plate in his in his. Uh, you can't see me, and I'm pointing. I'm doing a demonstration. It was <laughs> I, it was in his actual like hand. Oh, okay, sorry, sorry on that one then. Uh, but it, it, we have seen injuries with with fingers, and especially defensive linemen. You're going to wrap it up. You're going to tape those two middle fingers together. So much less concern there than maybe if it's like a wide receiver trying to catch the ball with without a broken. Yeah, Helton broken said finger. he's like week to week or something. Yeah. Or two, yeah. 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 Uh, I think Peely himself said it was minor, and so we'll see. Uh, we had a Facebook question that said, why are they not playing Brew McCoy as much? He's a five-star recruit. Uh, have your best players on the field. And why can't we see Stephen Carr more in the game? I like the way Carr played. We talked about this before. And the one thing, like, we can't watch. When I was told by Mike Jenks that he, had, you know, his vertical leap went up by six inches, to me that was like, okay, he's explosive again. And it looked like that. He definitely was. I think you're going to see Brew McCoy more – if they, especially they go back and look at the film, where was the offense more effective? We already talked about this. It was more effective when you had the four wide receivers and, and Brew McCoy was out there. But I think he'll get he'll get more of a rotation now. He got what he had five catchers or something like that in the game and that tip touchdown. So I think you'll see more of him. And I, I love the way that Stephen Carr uh, was playing the game. I'd like to see him catch a few more passes and and be a threat out there. But I, yeah, I like the way Carr Carr looked different to me uh, than he has the last couple of years. Yeah, I thought Stephen Carr looked really good. Um, there's some people that were saying, oh, he wasn't hitting it hard. He was dancing too much. I was like, what game are you watching here? Yeah, He no. forced nine missed tackles in this game. <laughs> that is amazing. USC is a defense. And we kind of said, ah, they didn't tackle great. They missed seven. He forced Arizona State's defense to miss nine tackles in this game. As one person. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, I think he had 13 touches. I think it was eight carries and and, uh, and five catches or something like that. He had thirty something yards after the catch, so he's catching the ball behind the back uh, the line of scrimmage. Now, when he when it looked like he was dancing or something, that was when people were on his feet as he was catching the ball and stuff. Uh, but otherwise, I thought he looked terrific early in the game when he runs up and hits Merlin Robertson and throws the stiff arm or the or the forearm check and shoves him back and then spins around off. Of, I mean, he was it, it looked. The juice was there, and that was the explosiveness we were looking for uh, since his freshman year. So that it looked, it was a really positive um, 
first game for him. Now, Clay Helton didn't mention, and he kind of threw it as a side comment. He's like, oh, he got bumps and bruises during the game, and that's why they went with some of the other guys later in the game. That's a little bit concerning. Yeah. Um, just because Clay Helton sometimes doesn't give you the full scope on the on an injury. So keep an eye on him going forward to see if there's if there's anything there. But he was he was pretty uh, he was back in the game late in the game for for some of those plays. Yeah, I'm also curious uh, Drake Jackson's health going forward, just because every time he was off the field, there was someone uh, working on that hamstring. He was on the bike, and I th- it just. Something to watch out for. That's all I'm going to yeah. say. Uh, Crank on YouTube said, where was Amon Ross St. Brown? Jack Jones shut him down, question mark? I mean, he had 100 yards receiving, didn't he? Yeah, he, <laughs> uh, he was he was pretty good. Watched it. Go back and rewatch. Uh, I forget what it was. Made a little bit of a screen pass or something. To, it might have been a screen pass to Carr. But he just trucks Jack Jones. Like the, It was the, one of the probably the best block of the game that I saw. Man, it was crazy. He just goes out there and physically chucks him to the ground. They give Jack Jones credit. He got pushed out of bounds, gets up, and still tries to come back and make a play. But I don't know if you remember that one, Shaka, but he really just – it was on the left sideline, I believe. And Brew McCoy just got into him. Those two guys were getting chippy, but he got into him on that block. No, that was that was Amon Ross St. Brown on that block, uh, not Brew. Uh, but I'm sorry, Amon Ross St. Brown. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, give Jack Jones credit for getting up and going and trying to make a tackle. But then Stephen Carr broke his ankles again, so it wasn't a very <laughs> wasn't a highlight play there for Jack Jones. Um, definitely, I think Amon Ross St. Brown had a, had a good game. They forced some passes to him. I felt like uh, so rather than you know him being shut down or anything, I thought they forced a little bit. I thought he played fine, not spectacular. And going back to Brew McCoy, how is he? When's he going to play more? Is who are you taking off the field? Or, you know, when he goes in, he was playing for Tyler Vaughn's. That's who he was rotating for with. So unless you're going four wide receivers all the time, which might be an option if the tight ends don't put, start playing better, who's he, who's he subbing in for? We have a question on Facebook. Uh, turnovers in the red zone is whose fault? Essentially, do you blame that on the player? Do you blame that on coaching? Both? Yeah. I mean, those are veteran guys. They need to hold on to the football, especially, yeah. you know, you know the rule – if you're reaching for the goal line, get across the goal line. You know, you don't fumble the ball reaching for the goal line, especially on first and goal. And Vi should know that. He, he I mean, he's a fifth year guy. He should, that's a, a terrible mistake for him there. But the turnovers on downs, I think that's on the, the coaching, you know, the play calling a little bit, uh, with some of those runs. And also you blame the fumbles a little bit maybe on did you practice hard enough during the offseason? Did you, you know, were those players ready for the hits and stuff that were coming? We had a question on YouTube that said, uh, do you think there's a chance that Todd Orlando will shake things up at linebacker? They seem completely non-existent. I mean, Kanai went in for a little bit. Yeah. He didn't really do much either. So They called I, his name once, but yeah, there wasn't. it yeah. wasn't like a huge upgrade or anything. He, was, he only played a, f- a handful of snaps. I don't, I don't know the exact count right now, but... You wonder if, if the injury is still a problem there, and if it is, you know, does, does that change going forward? It, the problem is with the inside linebackers is without Jordan Iasefa, uh, with him being out for the season, someone asked about when he would be back. He's, done, he's out for the year. Uh, and without Solomon Tuliala-Pupu, those are your, your most experienced guy and one of your more ta- hopefully one of your more talented guys whenever he's finally healthy, hopefully, um, that you can't sub in. So the guys behind them are... A basically a true freshman in Tua CV Nomura. He played a little bit on special teams last year before getting injured. And Raymond Scott, who just got moved back to the position. Those are the two guys that are backing up at those positions. Uh, we have a question on Facebook that said, it seemed like Jaden Daniels could run for 10 yards whenever he wanted to. Did Todd Orlando assign someone to shadow him? Should he, ha- should he have... Sh- <laughs> 
should he have assigned someone and forced him to throw? I think it was a situation that depends on what was going on. I didn't notice a spy on him, but like one yeah. of them, one of the big runs was like a man coverage thing. So everyone has your back turned. It's really hard to stop a, a quarterback run like that. Um, and yeah, they, and then, you know, he had a lane and he just ran and took it. So, uh, but I don't, I didn't see a spy. I don't know if you saw one there, shotgun. No, that's something that, that you would look for. And a guy like Max Williams, when he was in the game or a Talanoa Funga, one of those safeties, that's something they could do. And, that's something that has to be taught, too, is, hey, come up and spy, and then if you see the quarterback in trouble, the pocket collapsing, then attack, those type of things. You have to teach those things, and those are things you need to be able to see and do with live ball drills, and those are hard to do in practice, especially when you're trying to – you have such a condensed practice and you're trying to install a defense and all those things. Those are more nuanced things that may be a little bit more difficult this particular fall camp to, to kind of teach, but they didn't really – they never ran a spy or anything. What, the other thing they could have done better – is staying in their gaps blitzing. And that's hard to do when you've waited so long to play and you just want to get to the quarterback and you want to get there. But there was one in particular I saw Max Williams took a really wide uh, outside leverage and then the defensive end went really inside and it left a big lane and, and Jaden Daniels took advantage of it and ran for like 30-something yards. Yeah. We received multiple questions about USC's cornerbacks. What did you make of their uh, performance? I know some people, when they see a lot of PI penalties, completely trash cornerbacks. Uh, what did you make of their uh, performance on Saturday? There's a couple penalties, but I thought overall they did. I mean, they really limited, uh, you know, the passing game. I think they did a good job, uh, you know, not, not just the corners, but the whole secondary uh, on the young receivers. It definitely helped not having a guy like Frank Darby out there. But it didn't. It wasn't like the, the Arizona State passing game was... Uh, just, you know, completing passes all over the place. There was a couple, but just for the most part, I mean, the one, the biggest play, and I, and I think they might have ruled it a run, was that 55-yarder that was just kind of thrown sideways. But I thought the I thought the corner, the secondary overall, I thought they played pretty well. No, they counted that one as a pass. So you take that away. What did Jaden Daniels throw for, like 80 yards? They did count that as a pass. Wow, that was like 55 yards. Yeah, so yeah. he didn't throw for much. So I don't know what you're complaining about there. If you want to say, oh, well, they had three PIs, were those PIs where the players were getting beat and they just had to grab somebody? No, they were just being super physical and probably trying to do too much. And, you know, late in the game, if you watch that final drive, Chris Steele, again, very physical with the wide receivers, did not get the, the ASU did not get a call and they led to incompletions that won the game for USC. So yeah. even if you add three PIs, you know, that's 45 yards to 80, he gave a 125 yard passing. And like, I think like nine first downs total. That's that's really really good. So that's why one of the reasons why they went with so much man to man coverage. They trusted those guys and they did a really good job on a really young and inexperienced uh, wide receiver group. Coley Way on YouTube says, as fans were not allowed, how was the USC sideline energy? Were the players dialed in? Lenny Vandermade had a like a drum. Did you catch that shotgun? He had, like, I did not see he had that. a full on like uh, marching band drum because I was like typing and I and I'm like I hear a drum and I look up at his Lenny just in the background like hitting it. Um, I it was interesting when Amaron St. Brown and Jack Jones got into it a bit. The sideline was really into it and it almost felt like a practice atmosphere during one on one. So that I thought was interesting. And from the press box, I could hear more than I was really expecting to. I could hear Clay a lot and and so I thought that was interesting, but. The body language when USC was down by 13 was a little rough. I thought that uh, I, it was an opportunity for everyone to kind of check out, and it felt like it a little bit, but then once things kept started to turn around, then they checked back in. So I thought it was a, a give and take of, of being 
uh, dialed in and then kind of being a little dejected on the sideline. I don't know what your read was, Shadi. Uh, I thought USC's sideline energy was good. Um, I, I thought that the fact that you could hear, I could hear ASU's sideline a little bit better, obviously, because they were the sideline yeah. that was nearest us. But then there were several times, multiple times, we'll say, that I heard them yelling, get you, you know, you got to get in this game. We got to have more energy. We got to have more energy. The team that has more energy uses the team that wins. That's the that's a Graham Harrell saying. Um, so that tells you that if the ASU sideline felt they didn't have any energy, then USC sideline had better energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesper Smith on YouTube says, "Why does Helton continue to go for it on fourth downs with this soft offensive line? Hasn't he learned that they aren't dominant enough to go for it on fourth downs?" He said during his press conference that he's always going to be aggressive um, in situations, and he also credited Jaden Daniels and said. You know, I expected Arizona State that the points would be needed in this game because of Jaden Daniels and his ability um, on the other side. I have no issue with going for it in fourth down. I mean, if it's fourth and one, you're at the opponent's six-yard line. Like, I think you go for it in that situation. So uh, you have to you have to trust your team. Uh, yeah, should they? Because that's something they could practice more. Could they do more goal line stuff in practice? Probably. I mean, maybe you learn from that. You're like, you know what? We got to do more of this in practice because it wasn't working. But I, I think those are good situations where, yeah, you, later on you're like, oh, we should have took the field goal. But no, I think you, you want to go for it in those situations. I think mathematically going for it, fourth and one, opponent's six-yard line, you're usually going to do uh, – you know, the expected value is going to be higher than if you kick the field goal. The, the one questionable one was the first one they didn't get when you're at like the 45 or something. Yeah. Um, and you, you fail to get that when you give Arizona State a short field and the three previous drives Arizona State had, they had nothing going for them. So you give them momentum as well and they score on that drive immediately. Good question. An interesting one from Donald Smith who says, how do you think the recruits felt about this game? Which is just interesting considering that ASU has been trying to make a run in, in the recruiting space. What did you guys take away from the mind of a recruit? I mean, usually the recruits can be there and they can't. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, recruits don't live and die by every play and all that. Like if they're going to USC, it doesn't matter. Like if USC's a little bit down, they're the recruits. So they're like, well, I'm the future. We're going to get better once I get there. So it's they're definitely not looking at it from a fan's point of view. So uh, you know, people would always worry about the USC UCLA game. Oh, UCLA won. They're, they're all the recruits are going to go there. Like that's just not the way recruiting works. Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, both teams have stuff to sell from that game. Arizona State can say, "Hey, we're one play away with you. We make that play." USC can say, hey, look at the resilience, look at the toughness of this team um, to be able to come back from a game like that. Yeah. Look at Shadi. You sound like a recruiter already. <laughs> Hip Hop Lover said, I didn't really see Keaton Slovis run a lot last year, but did his increased mobility surprise you guys yesterday? He had like a 24-yarder or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was that was pretty good. Yeah, I, you want to see him do that every once in a while. They, Coach Hyde wanted to see them do some design runs, but I don't, I'm fine without doing that. But you want them to be able to take off and uh, pick up a first down every once in a while. Just keep a defense honest. Yeah, the design run is, you know, on that fourth and one, and Merlin Robertson's flying off the edge. you got to be able to keep it every once in a while and just take it because that's probably a touchdown on that, that fourth and one from the six. But I don't think it surprised me with his mobility. It's not like he was, you know, juking anybody or anything. But he was really smart with it. And, I, you know, I observed and appreciated his mobility in this game and how he used it. Um, he's, he's been a guy that, you know, will move around the pocket and keep plays alive. And he did that. And just he, he had the maturity to know when to take off and try to pick up that first down down the sideline versus when to dump it off to the running back or someone uh, for a short gain and then just live for the next play. Uh, Daker says, did SC win in spite of broken offensive plays? 
despite of broken offensive. In spite, play. I believe. He in spite, meant. In sp- yeah. I mean, it's you know the first game in over ten months. I mean, I, I'm not gonna like nitpick everything that was going on there. I think for overall, I like the offensive scheme. Keen Slovis didn't look like he had his best day. Still completed, like we said before, seventy two percent of his passes. But uh, you know, overall, it's like. It was. I don't think it was a bad offensive performance. There was some situational stuff that was bad. There was a lot of turnovers that were bad. Uh, for the most part, though, I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, despite the, the, you know, in spite of the way the offense plays. I mean, it's still racked up over what 555 yards or something like that. Yeah. So offense did some positive things. I, there were times when I would like a little bit more creativity with it in those fourth and one situations when you've been stuffed multiple times. Um, so that that was really the only thing. I know Joel Klatt was really on. Uh, Graham Harrell about some of the crossing routes and different things, but I thought that Keaton Slovis did a really good job being patient, not really trying to force many throws. Uh, the one to Jude Wolf that was intercepted, that was, and the one to Drake London earlier that went through the defender's hands. But besides that, you know, he took the checkdowns when he needed to, and he threw some some deep balls, uh, you know, to help loosen up the defense a little bit as well. In the same vein, Mark uh, was a little snarky, but he said, do you think the offense will be able to turn the checkdown raid into an effective air, ra- air raid soon? If they run the ball effectively yeah. on early downs and commit to doing that when teams want to drop. And now one of the things that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is that everyone is just like, well, they drop coverage all the time. You think Marvin Lewis and Antonio Pierce with the experience that they have just did the same thing every time? Come on, it, it wasn't straight drop eight like we saw. BYU was pretty much just straight drop eight, the, you know, like 90% of the time last year. And that's what you can do against a freshman quarterback making his first road start. You couldn't do that against Keaton Slovis this year. I think he would be able to, to find ways to pick that apart. Um, what they did was they disguised things pretty good uh, when they were going to drop coverage, when they were going to bring a little bit of pressure because they didn't bring much pressure at all because they, they blitzed seven times and Keaton Slovis completed seven passes. So when they blitzed against him passing, he was, he was on fire. So I think that they knew that their best chance was to drop back and, and force him to be a little bit more patient. I thought Keaton Slopes was, was decent at that. I mean, I thought he was good at being patient, but I thought he was decent at picking apart the defense. And that's something they, they decided, hey, let's force USC to, to work their way down the field and not make a mistake. And obviously USC will make some mistakes. Yeah. Jasper Smith said, why don't they run the running backs uh, outside off tackle more? The interior O-line is too weak to try to run anything interiorly. They had a really effective, that Stephen Carr run. It was one of the short yardage situations that went wide with that. And uh, he looked really good there. Yeah, I think they'd like to do some more of that. I don't, if, I don't know if it was a stubborn thing where it's like, hey, this wasn't working. We're going we're gonna to make it work. And it just wasn't, you know, the, the interior stuff wasn't working. They definitely do a better job. Running when you know you're, the pass game, you're, 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 they're setting up the run with the pass. Um, you know that's just when they're effective. When you know you're going to run, and the other team's geared up to stop it, USC hasn't been all, all that effective. But I think they would be a little bit more effective trying to go, you know, wide in certain the, in some of those situations. And like Shotgun said, if it's a if it's a zone read kind of play, Keen Silva's got to be able to see the, like, oh, you know, the linebackers right on this. He's going to hit the uh, the running back in the backfield. I can just go the other way and pick up a few yards. Yeah, I mean, when they ran off the edges, uh, according to Pro Football Focus, they ran six plays off the ends, and they ran for 55 yards. So that's a pretty good average there. Yeah. Uh, so that's something to consider. Now, uh, the, the thing that if you run outside, you have, the, you have a greater chance for big plays because if you can 
beat the first guy or the first after contact, then there's usually more open space. But you also have the potential for negative plays that set you back. So maybe USC is being a little bit more conservative to try to not get in third and long situations, uh, which they still did anyways. Uh, but uh, maybe that was part of the game plan. Not real sure uh, against ASU that they were trying to negate that potential. Um, but it's something that you have to explore. And I think you know, they ran a ton up the middle and didn't have a ton of success. So sometimes you got to make that adjustment a little bit quicker in the games. Uh I believe Trenton Trojan said, why can't Marquis Step get the fourth and one on that one play by the goal line? Yeah, I mean, I, I love the when he jumped over the top, the, the Marcus Allen kind of leap like that. You just don't see that much in college football anymore for some reason. So uh, I love I love the way Marquis Step runs uh, in those short yard situations. So, yeah, it, but they, I think all, all three of those backs had opportunities at different spots. I don't remember a fourth and one where he wasn't in uh, down by the goal line. The fourth and six, you know, that wasn't that him getting stuffed. Am I incorrect in that? It was Stephen Carr. Oh, was it was Stephen Carr. Okay, I believe. I think he was he was in on. Oh, that's what it was. He was in on the second down to get him down to that, and then he was in on third and one as well. So I think he had been in for a few plays in a row. I think they were just trying to get a new guy in. It didn't matter who the running back was on that play because as soon as he touched the ball, he was getting tackled. So. This next one is something that uh, I talked to Shotgun about on instant analysis. So let's go to you first, Ryan. Uh, Adler says, do you think USC can still win out this season? Yeah, I think that it's likely that USC will win out this season. This was the one that you had to get. Uh, it was Arizona State early. This was a team that was going to be well prepared. They had 100 hours of practice in the summer where, you, you know, full team stuff that USC didn't have any. So, yeah, I thought this was going to be. Likely the toughest game, maybe the one at Utah. We Unfortunately, we didn't get to see Utah play yet. Uh, look, Utah, they've moved the UCLA game to Saturday, so I think that's a little bit more positive that it was supposed. UCLA and Utah are supposed to play on Friday. They moved it to Saturday. It seems like the reports are good that Utah will be able to play a game, so we'll at least be able to see them uh, coming up next weekend, most likely. Uh, and that you know that'll be the toughest one that's left. To be, fair, to be fair, I didn't think Washington State would be very good. They looked a lot better against Oregon State than I thought they would. Um, they were really effective in the air rate. They didn't have Max Borgie for that game. Uh, they had, I think there were 32 players were out, and they still went out and did a really good job winning on the road for a first-year head coach that had no spring practice. So kudos to Washington State. Maybe that game's going to be a little tougher than we thought. But USC is still going to be the most talented team. You get through Arizona State. You know, Utah, maybe that's a coin flip. Maybe, you know, USC will have a little bit of an advantage there. But I think that's it's pretty – it's not likely, but I would say – I would say it's likely. I think it's likely that USC goes undefeated. They should go undefeated, barring some sort of crazy injury stuff or COVID stuff. Yeah, they'll be favored in every game from here on out. Um, I was surprised at how wide the spread actually was for Arizona State, uh, and I was correct in that. It's surprising that how close it was, how close the Arizona – spread is to the Arizona State one. You know, only 13 points uh, when I think we all agree that Arizona State, we believe, is a much better team than Arizona this Way year. Way better, yeah. Um, the, what would be interesting is we've talked about how USC strength of schedule has just declined uh, rampantly this season, every new, new iteration of the schedule. And it's possible still that they could start the season, their first three games against teams that haven't played yet. Yeah. So unless, I mean, Utah, they moved the game back this week. The Pac-12 did. But there's still question marks about whether they can travel and play uh, against UCLA with the COVID you know, stuff that they're going through right now. So that's a question mark. And it might be that US, they play USC that first game. Um, but that's something. Keep an eye on that situation just because if it lingers, if it gets worse or anything like that, USC, there's the potential they could lose their game at Utah too. So. Yeah. 
And on that topic, I was going to ask you guys next, given the two cancellations that the Pac-12 saw before week one even started, are you concerned at all now about the viability of, of completing a full season? I think I, I had a rare moment where I tweeted my thoughts on Twitter and I was just saying, you know, this is a conference that has been uh, very conservative the whole way uh, among the Power Five. And even in their return press conference, it seemed like they were very cognizant that, you know, if this goes bad they'll pull the plug and they'll yeah. do it because they can't, you know, and, and you're dealing with schools and counties that are in really strict, they have really strict guidelines that they're dealing with. And then you have spikes everywhere. And I think that's why you saw that seep in, into Utah and their football team. Um, So are you worried at all that this might be a house of cards that comes crashing down? I certainly am. And, and, and the Pac-12 is definitely more conservative and it's, it depends on the, the local governments too. I think the ACC, the SEC, they're going to play the games as if there's any way possible that they can play uh, those games. And I don't think if, if Keaton Slovis was going to be out for a couple of weeks because of COVID-19, he wouldn't be on the road like we saw Trevor Lawrence in, in you know, at Notre Dame, which that looked like a full freaking stadium. So, yeah, this is a it's a different ball game. You know, normally Notre Dame would be a more conservative. I think they would be, you know, err on the side of caution, but they're in the ACC for this year, and man, they just look like we're playing. You know, this is number one versus number four. We're going to figure it out. Our star quarterback's still going to come wear a mask on the sideline. Like, that just didn't make any sense to me. Like, have him stay home. But whatever, that's that's a, a whole different thing. But for the Pac-12, for sure, I mean, I like, you know, for Utah, they had a bunch of positive tests. That made sense to me that you have to, they didn't have enough players, you have to cancel that game. For Cal, it was different because there was one asymptomatic player and everyone else that was around him was tested and they were all negative. But because of the city of Berkeley's, their contact tracing, from what I understand, that's really what shut things down. It forced those guys, anyone that was in contact with that player had to sit out for two weeks in quarantine, even if they tested positive. So to me, it's like, if you're going to do something that strict, you probably shouldn't have restarted the season to begin with. Because that's a really tough situation. You have one player that's asymptomatic and everyone else is negative. And they've been tested multiple times. To me, that's tough. Like, if you want to say that that's the rules and you shouldn't play, that's fine. But I don't even think you should have restarted the season if that was a possibility. So this is, yeah, a third of the games got canceled in the first week of the Pac-12. Is that going to get better? I don't know. I mean, they, they got to, maybe you, it's a wake-up call to people. You got to figure this out. Hey, you can't, you can't do anything that could put your, you know, your team in jeopardy. One person on your team could test positive, not be sick, and shut the whole thing down. So, yeah, I think... I think the players and, and the coaches and stuff are taking it seriously, but that's a it's a really risky road to go down if that's you know that the margin for error is just not very big. Yeah, there was a discrepancy in you know from what I read about Justin Wilcox's thoughts on you know whether it was a continuous amount of time that someone had to be near someone that was positive or a cumulative amount of time um, that you know that you were near someone to be con considered. Uh, in, in danger for their contact tracing. So that was a, a big portion of that, you know, and they, I think they basically were without a position, um, is what it seemed like. A position group was basically going to be all quarantined because of, of Berkeley's rules. And it's really interesting and weird that across the way, you know, across the way, across the bay, Stanford, Davis Mills, their starting quarterback and one of their starting wide receivers test positive. They were still able to, you know, to play a game and, you know, get everything in against Oregon this past week. So 
it, it's going to take everyone in the conference and all the players, all the coaches to just be on top of everything as much as possible because we know that the Pac-12 and the, the municipalities out in, in this area of the country are going to be much more strict than other places. And I disagree with you, Ryan, that, that Notre Dame would normally be more strict. I mean, I don't just because they think they're a, a high-class institute, don't let Coley fool you. Okay. I was just trying to be nice to Coley. But Coley, what the heck were your people doing? Like, that was, that was insane. Like, you're all around the players and stuff. Like, you could, the whole team could be in date. Both teams. Like, it's, like, that was nuts. Yeah, you're the representative, Coley. You need to answer for yourself. Uh, Quinn (laughs) said, uh, if we're talking about other teams, why isn't JT Daniels playing for Georgia? Shotgun, you are our Georgia representative. (laughs) Please answer. Uh, It's a valid question. I mean, I didn't watch any of the Georgia Florida game. Um, besides showing Keeley the player that broke his leg on the touchdown. But he bes- tricked me. It was awful. I was like, I don't want to see it. Don't show me. He's like, yeah, yeah, just look at this touchdown play. It was pretty good. And also this leg is all the way over here. It was just not good. Big brother style. Yeah, pretty um, much. Yeah. I was watching some of it uh, from home. And I, what, what's the starter, the, the former walk-on uh, guy? Bennett Stetman. Or Stetman yeah, Stetson so he, Bennett. Stetson Bennett. So he goes out. And then they show on the sideline. And they have, was it Mathis, I think, is the other <laughs> Hitting guy? Hitting the ball boy. He threw a ball and hit the ball boy. But JT Daniel was, was there. But, like. Mathis was the one warming up, so it just seemed like they, they had a choice, and they put, you know, the other guy in. So I, who knows? Like, I, I mean, there was an opportunity there because of an injury, you know, and he ended up coming back in. But, um, yeah, I, it doesn't seem like JT Daniels is that high up on the depth chart. Yeah, after, I mean, seeing the last couple games uh, before USC started back, was able to watch games on Saturdays. Watching Georgia, you know, Stetson Bennett did not give a ton of confidence in his ability, especially going up against a team like Florida. So I wasn't surprised to hear that he had been benched. Um, it is surprising that JT Daniels has still not come off the bench at all. You know, they've, they've made switches to the quarterback position multiple times now, and he has not, you know, been given a shot at all, which makes you wonder, is there still something with the injury, even though they say he's cleared? Yeah. You know, maybe they're saying it just so they don't have to answer the question every single day. Um, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it seems surprising. I thought that he would have a chance to go there and, and be in competition for that, and it seems like he's still way down the depth chart. A mm-hmm. um, couple more questions, and then we'll wrap it, wrap it up. We had a lot of questions about zone. Should USC uh, be concerned that they seem to be struggling against zone defenses? Shogun, I know you had a pet peeve about this, but what is your take? No, I, I think that you know Arizona State did a good job of disguising their stuff. When they ran man coverages, there were certain plays when they ran man, and USC picked those apart. But when they ran the ball more late in the game, it forced Arizona State to do some different things, and that's that opened up something like the the Drake London touchdown. You know, the safeties are doing different things when they can't just all sit back the entire time, but you run the ball and you pick up 20 yards on that first play from Vi, and then the next play you pick up 10, suddenly they go, okay, they're driving the ball, we got to make an adjustment here. Um, so you got to be able to run the ball effectively to be able to throw the ball against zones like that. And you know if they're going to give you those you know soft zones, then your offensive line can get out in front and go pick somebody up and you know run for five, six, seven, eight yards of carry. And I think that Keen Slovis is only is only going to continue to get better as the season progresses. And I thought he did a good job of being patient. He didn't throw any passes that you know like in the BYU game or Matt Fink in the Washington game where you just go, that's you just can't make that throw. That's a terrible read. You know, the play on Merlin Robertson, he made a bad read on it, but that was a really nice play uh, for that interception. Apparently, uh I read a comment that said that the CDC apparently just changed their definition for close contact, and it's making things uh, much more difficult. So we'll see how that 
evolved. More difficult. Yes. For, for who? For teams because it's closer. Teams, gotcha. Yes, I believe. So we'll have to look into that. Um, and apparently, uh, the, apparently the reports are that JT didn't rehab as hard as he should have. Now that's a report apparently. So huh. we'll see. Uh, what that means. Um, Shotgun, I know you have been collecting rapid fire questions. Is there anything you want to get to that I haven't already uh, gotten to yet? I, you know, someone asked about Jordan. Yosefa, is he going to be out? He's out for the season. Uh, what happened to Josh Follow? They, you know, we asked about him in the, in the fall camp and they said that he came back and he was behind um, as far as, you know, being in shape and whatnot. So he just had a, got off to a slow start. He's behind Jude Wolf. You know, there's no doubt about it right now. Eric Cromanhook, is he going to be behind Jude Wolf going forward? That's a better question. How are we injury wise? Keely, you know, pointed out Brett Nealon. That's the big question mark. The good thing for the USC offensive line is that your sixth man, Justin Dietrich, was going in to the offensive line regardless of which person on the offensive line got injured. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, he would have gone in either at center, at guard, or he would have went in at guard and someone would have bumped out to tackle if one of the tackles got hurt. The good thing is he's your backup center. So you have faith in him. He's played the position before. He's been, you know, he has some game experience. So you feel a little bit more comfortable there than if you had to switch it and the next person up is Andrew Milik, uh, yeah. is the next center on, on the depth chart. You know, it'll be interesting to see if there's, if there's another person that needs to come in. Who's the next guy? Who's the number seven guy? And I think it depends on what position. I think much yeah. more so the next one. If it's a guard, then Liam Douglas will come in. If it's a tackle, then I think you're seeing a freshman and we'll see. You know, which one of those three guys, Casey Collier, Jonah Monheim, or uh, a Cortland Ford is coming in? Or do you put Liam Douglas in and then bump out a Liam Jimmins or an Andrew Voorhees? Those, those all could be viable situations, but hopefully you don't get to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a question that kind of suggested, do you think uh, Harold's scheme actually works? Because I know you mentioned how Joel Clout was pretty rough on, on Harold. Do you think it's his scheme works? It's his offensive line that is not helping his scheme in that sense. Now, one of the things I'm going to chart when I when I go back and do my full evaluation is how long Keaton Slovis from snap to throw or snap to you know being pressured out of the pocket because there were times when he had plenty of time to throw. I know a lot of people, you, you look at the three sacks, but he kept plays alive where there wasn't a ton of pressure on him. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, a couple games last season where it felt like he was under pressure all the time. It definitely didn't look like a couple years ago when JT Daniels had no time at all uh, in that Stanford game or a couple of the other ones. So I thought they did okay. I think it was just, uh, you know, it became exasper- exacerbated by the fact that you don't pick up those third and one, fourth and one. So now people are looking at the offensive line more. I didn't think he was, you know, being hounded all day. I don't know about you guys. What did you think? No, I thought there were there was some. I think it was good and bad yeah. uh, with the offensive line. It was a little bit, you know, up and down. But it, yeah, I, I think scheme wise, it's a good scheme. I mean, I like the scheme. It's a quarterback friendly scheme. You saw, you know, Keaton Slovis set freshman passing, you know, percentage, all time record for FBS. You know, for a true freshman. And I mean, I, I think the scheme works. It's not going to be perfect against every defense, and it's not going to work every week. But for the most part, I like. It's a much more. I, I just think it's a much more suited scheme for the talent that USC has. And it just, I think that when you run something like that, you know what you're doing, where before what they were running, it just seemed like a more of a grab bag thing. This is at least a philosophy of yeah. what they're going to do. And, yeah. and they're sticking to it. And I think for the most part, it's been really effective. Yeah. And when they make those adjustments, the offense opens up. And even uh, Drake London said, you know, once we, I can't remember the exact quote, but he said, once we get rolling, 
you know, basically watch out for this offense. You know, they, they start cooking with, with Ingram Harrell's offense. And that you saw that at the very end of the game. You saw it in the early in the game before Arizona State made some adjustments. Uh, so it, it's just, it's all about the adjustments. Uh, Joel Klatt from speed watching and listening, he was pointing out how, you know, USC was really shut down in the BYU game. And he said the Notre Dame game. And I go, the Notre Dame game. I was like, did you only watch the first half? Because the second half, they didn't get stopped. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just, that was a halftime adjustment. They figured things out, and you know we're rolling in the second half. The defense couldn't get off the field that game. But can you make that adjustment by the end of the first quarter instead of the end of the first half? You know that's that's the difference between being a, a really good offense and put up a lot, a lot of yards and being a great offense. You know the Oklahomas of the recent years, the Clemsons. Where you just can't stop that team. If they get ahead, you're you're fearful because you don't know if you'll ever catch up. In that sense, Greg on Facebook was asking, are you concerned that uh, there seems to be a lack of adjustments or slow evolution of adjustments? I think Graham Harrell makes some really good adjustments, much more so than the offense we previously saw yeah. from USC. Um, it's just kind of the timing, and you know, it's, it's figuring out what the other team is do, doing because you know it was USC moved the ball really well. I think Keaton Slovis completed ten of his first twelve passes in the game, and then Arizona State made some adjustments. How quickly do you adjust to their adjustments? And that's that's the game of football: is uh, adjustments uh, to the adjustments to the adjustments of the adjustments to the adjustments. Exactly. Uh, your quote, shotgun, that you were talking about the Drake London quote. He said, uh, "I think it was the first game jitters. It was more getting the kinks out, focusing on getting the ball downfield. Once we get into our groove on offense, it's a pretty scary sight." So yeah, and, and one of the things is Amon Ross St. Brown playing a little bit different position this year. You know, figuring out the the soft spots in zones, and that's the thing. You, you can run those crossing routes. And they picked up a first down, you know, in the red zone because they ran a crossing route and Amon Ra knows where to sit down. He sits down in the zone, catches the ball over the middle, picks up the first down. So it's not like you can't run crossing routes against zones. It's knowing where that green grass is and how to kind of attack it. And I think when you have Jude Wolf in there and he's one of those interior guys, it's a little bit different, um, you know, just because it's his first game where he's being asked to do a lot more. So I think as he grows, I think the offense can grow as well. And the same thing with Brew McCoy as he gets some more experience too. Uh, we got this question multiple times, so sorry guys for not answering it quickly enough. He said, uh, to, multiple people said, what do you guys think about the replay review after ASU already ran a play? Was there a comment by the Pac-12? Didn't see a comment. That was very strange um, that they, they were able to do that. You, I mean, what if someone gets hurt on that play? You're like, oh, that play didn't count. We're going to go back two plays and, and review <laughs> that one. That just seemed really weird to me. Uh, yeah, I, w I, I sped through the end of the game, so I didn't really see it. And then from... Uh, up where I was, I was just confused, you know, because I don't have a replay or anything going on in the concourse level. So I didn't really know what exactly was going on. So I'll have to look at it a little bit closer. And, you know, if someone gets hurt, that, that reminds me, Ryan, uh, you know, what, what's smart coaching, I guess, of Arizona State to tell Merlin Robertson to go down? Because I'm pretty sure, because he was in on the play against Marquise Stepp and looked perfectly fine when he jumped up to yell that it was a fumble. Right. And then suddenly he went down before USC could snap the ball, so which allowed uh, the referees to then whistle down and review the play when USC was trying to go tempo to make sure that they couldn't. Yeah. Speaking of which, someone commented, I think Jack Jones has had another cramp, So, <laughs> which I thought was funny. That's a good one to end on. Yeah. Um, 
Any final thoughts? I know we had a lot of questions actually about just what it was like being in the Coliseum and the atmosphere. The band wasn't there. They were playing traditional band songs at the appropriate times. Um, it didn't really make its way onto the pr- into the press box as much as I think normally it would. Uh, Shotgun, I don't know if it was different for you, but yeah, it was just interesting overall. I noted on Twitter that uh, the weirdest part was when the team, after the team warmed up and you have that 15 minutes where they go back into the locker room and the, the marching band comes out. It was just super eerie. It was really quiet and like faintly like California Love was playing in the background and it just felt a little apocalyptic. Yeah. So it was just like weird um, on that front, but still it was nice to see football again. Shadi, I don't know what your review was of, of the weirdness, the, the COVID y. Yeah, it felt like a spring game. Yeah. You know, it just, there, there wasn't the intensity in the air, I guess, uh, that you get with the crowd being there mm-hmm. and there being. You know, seventy to ninety thousand people versus there being you know three hundred other people in the stadium around the or three hundred people total maybe. Um, so it w- it was definitely a much different environment in such a cavernous place. You, you need a lot of people to to make it feel intense and, and on top of you, and that wasn't necessarily the case. I I always kind of zone out for the music and stuff, uh, but I had a thought. Yeah. You know they were, you did that shocking. Know, they were playing some of the songs that the the band plays. I think uh, at, at certain times, and I never heard the bell. They said they were going to do the bell on third downs that USC usually does for defense. Like uh, the victory bell, they'll play it. Yeah, yeah. they normally yeah. you know as third down get the crowd hype. They'll bang the bell or they'll play it through the PA. I didn't hear that, uh, but I had a thought that. Why not have Art Art Bartner there to decide what songs are played because that's what he does during a game. You know, or have him have a touch screen at home that he can play. All right, this plays now. This is the next one. Cue it up. Apparently, they didn't play the songs at the right time. Someone just jumped in in the comments and said they were not played at the appropriate times. They were That's playing tunes at the wrong times. Well, maybe get our partner there. Okay. That's yeah. a ban. That's a ban. And I guess the timing was a little off too. Like, I mean, to be honest, like from the te- television broadcast, it just sounded like there was an you know the, you got the nat sound of what the stadium would be. It wasn't it didn't seem too bad, but I think in person maybe it was a little different. So I had both. I had the broadcast in my ears and I was watching it live and. On the broadcast, it sounded much more. I think you could have been fooled much more easily. Easily, easily. I can't say it. Much, easier. Yes, yeah. thank you. Much easier. <laughs> Gosh, uh, than if you show. were there in person. It just sounded real. I would have been faked if I was watching solely the broadcast, but it did. You could tell it was a little off. There were definitely times where because it's mostly a common just a roar, but then there were times that in the plays that there's the, there's the cheering portion. Um, there's you know there's different sound bites for that, and it would be like USC runs third and one and gets stuff, and you hear like ah like a positive, and it's like that's not that, that's that not wasn't happen. good for them. It's uh, a hard so, job though. But yeah, so it's it's a thankless job as well. Um, so those guys, I'm sure it was their first game, so they're trying to figure it out, even though they had the scrimmage. And and in scrimmage, it's harder to figure out because do you, do we do a positive thing for the offense or for the defense to stop? <laughs> so maybe that was part of it. They were just trying to figure it out in the first game. They'll have a couple weeks off. To, to prepare for their next game when <laughs> USC returns home to play Colorado in three weeks. Get their so. jaw set yeah. for some, some sound. Alrighty, guys, it is a half an hour. We did an hour and a half. Uh, sorry, Ryan, I know you want to do a quick one, but we went long. It was first recap of the, the season. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday to preview USC's matchup against Arizona. Any final thoughts before we wrap this puppy up? One last question Coley White asked. He said, Shotgun, would you say USC's most important recruitment is asking Amon Ross St. Brown to stay another year. He could win the Heisman in 2021. No, he can't win the Heisman because he's a receiver. They don't win the Heismans anymore. And two, no, it's not the most important recruitment because he's gone. Uh, and no. th- number three, most important recruitment is getting an elite defensive lineman, someone like Corey Foreman, who's right down the street. Yeah. Sure. 
Yep. I, I would agree with you there. It will be interesting to see if any of those seniors want to stay. They were talking to Tyler Vaughns on the pregame show, I think, about he needed like 60-something catches or he needed a bunch to catch, you know, to get set the records. Full season, it would have been fairly easy. Without a full season, probably not. But he could come back for another year and then set all the records if he wanted to. So you might get some guys like that that's like, ah, maybe I don't have the biggest NFL grade. I'll stick around. I'll play. I'll go work on my Masters or something and uh, and play another year. So that's going to be something fun to watch uh, after this season. Yep. All righty. That's going to wrap it up. We'll be back, like I said, on Wednesday to preview USC Arizona. So make sure you stay tuned to that. Thanks for everybody who watched. If you're still on, make sure to like, subscribe, do all the things. You know, Ryan loves that. Hit Ryan. the likes. Like, 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 like. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but that's Ryan. That's Shotgun. I'm Kelly. We'll see you all on Wednesday. Bye. See ya. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.